I was laying in the dark on the floor of our church parlor, right through that door. I was curled up a little, and I didn't want to move, or I couldn't move. My body hurt so much that truly, very briefly, I was afraid that I might die. It was a Sunday morning, September of last year, which is our big, we hope, regathering Sunday, but it was after church and nobody else was in the building. Most people had left already, but I knew that Vince was still finishing up. And even though he was all the way outside somewhere on the lawn, and even though I really did not want to, it was all I could manage to do. I called his name, Vince, Vince. And even while I yelled, even in the middle of this disorienting pain, if you want to know the truth, I felt so embarrassed. Like this is what my life was like a middle-aged pastor, I tripped cleaning up from our outdoor worship service. I had been carrying this ancient and heavy stool that Nick used when he plays cello. It's, it, this stool is old-fashioned. It has like three big, heavy cast iron legs and a thick, round wooden seat that's upholstered with embroidery. You can like raise or lower the seat by screwing it up or down. And I should say that Nick used to like it because as I was carrying it into the parlor, I tripped and I fell on the stool and I broke it into two pieces with my sternum. So this is what my life was. I always, and still a single person, was calling out to my colleague to come help me from where I lay on the floor in the dark in my stupid practical but cutish wedge sandals, very, later, very lady pastor stuff, and my cute summer dress that left me suddenly feeling naked, my arms and legs out while I gasped in pain. Vince? Part of what I like about being single is that I get to do things alone. Not everything, like I'm a board certified extrovert. I always buy two tickets to events in the hope and belief that a friend will join me. But I like hiking alone, because I can follow my own nose and stop when I want and look at what I want, take pictures of little wildflowers and try to figure out what they are, and I don't have to worry at any point if I'm going too slowly or too quickly. And I like doing all the little interstitial stuff of my daily life alone, all the going out and coming back in, the cleaning and puttering. I find doing that stuff in the presence of somebody else excruciating. They'll see how many tries it takes me to get out the door. I go back for a hat, just in case. I go back for my sunglasses. Damn it, I go back for my lunch. I packed it and I left it on the counter. Anyone watching me would see me over-planning for errands. They'll see me misplacing the sweater that I just had in my hands. A few weeks ago, I biked down with a friend to Montrose Harbor, which is a place I go all the time, but this time I somehow ended up on an unfamiliar path and led us in a roundabout and goofy way, and I called over to my shoulder to her, this is why I'm single. I can't stand somebody seeing that I get lost on the way to Montrose Harbor. One of the hardest things about being single for me is also doing things alone. Everything in my life or household that needs doing, I do. Dishes, car emissions test, errands, garbage, getting groceries when I'm sick, and things that would be easier to do with another person, like moving furniture without scraping the floor, or putting up a Christmas tree, although I know that putting up a Christmas tree can really test a relationship. 
One of the other hard things about being single is that I, in spite of all that, want someone to witness my life, to bear witness to my life. It's just that I'm also afraid that if, that when people do, they will find me unbearable, insufferable, gross, needy. Kyle was borderline insufferable, or he wasn't insufferable, but he was consistently irritating. He was disruptive during services at the church where I worked. He had an incredibly ponderous way of talking. He was condescending, and that's just the stuff I feel comfortable telling you, even though I'm not using his real name. So one day, when I met him for coffee, and I was, of course, late because I am also consistent and irritating, I found Kyle's suggestion that I might have a diagnosable condition that makes me late. I found that borderline insufferable. But first, I apologized. Yes, I said, I am late for everything. It is a real flaw. It's disrespectful to other people's time, and I have worked on it to no avail. I worried even then that it wasn't ever going to change, and bad news, that was like a dozen years ago, and I'm still working on it. That's all real, I said to Kyle. And I said, we all have things that we put up with in each other people that we're in close, regular contact with, people that we're in community and relationship with. Are there things you put up with in me? Kyle wanted to know. Yes, I said. But then I like demurred when he wanted to know specifics. Anyway, Kyle, we're together now at this Starbucks table, and I really am sorry, so how are you? And Kyle did all of his usual ponderous condescension, and I did all my usual, like, straining to listen genuinely and be present. And then he wanted to know if he could ask me a question. Sure, I said. Well, he said he'd had this rash on his arm for a while. Mm-hmm. And he wondered if it, he could show it to me. And one hand was already on the cuff buttons of his shirt. Because he wanted to know if I thought it was okay for him to wear short sleeves for other people to see his rash. It was the middle of a Chicago summer. Really hot. Like, you know those few days every year that you're like, I guess I am glad I put in the window unit. And Kyle wanted my opinion, like my pastoral advice, on whether it was appropriate to wear short sleeves. So he unbuttoned his cuff and, and rolled up his sleeve. And his forearm looked regular, like maybe a little dry, like a little tiny bit dry. I couldn't see anything. Oh, Kyle. First of all, first of all, I, I would like to think that I thanked him for trusting me, but I'm not sure that I did. I know that I did say, I believe that people should wear whatever is comfortable for their own bodies. So many of us have all kinds of different things that are true about our bodies, and we don't, we don't owe it to other people to dress in a certain way to make them comfortable, you know, like real lady pastor stuff. And second of all, I said truthfully that if he hadn't said anything, if I saw him on the street in the middle of a crowd, I wouldn't notice a thing. Kyle died years ago but I can see him plain as day at that Starbucks, sleeve rolled up, needing somebody to look at him and tell him what they saw. 
I don't know if the woman who touched Jesus' hem, hoping and believing that she might be healed, I don't know if she was single. I do know she had to do a lot of things alone. And listen, I tried not to preach about this woman again. I preach about her all the time because she is so important to me. With her 12 long years of bleeding, with all her visits to those doctors who took her money but didn't help her, with all her money now gone and her diagnosable kind of condition getting worse, and in the meantime, having to tend to everything in her life and household that needed doing alone because of her bleeding. You know, if you've heard anybody preach on it even once, she was isolated. She was ritually unclean. She couldn't go to worship. She couldn't touch a man. She couldn't take something from a man's hand, couldn't pass something to a man. Whether she was single or not, there was around her a bubble of solitude at meals, at home, in her community. Plus now she was impoverished. Plus she had been bleeding for 12 years. Was she tired? Did she feel physically depleted? Was she sick of it? The inconvenience, the laundry? Did she feel on some days nothing more or less than gross? I don't know if she was courageous or bold to go out there and see Jesus. I don't know if maybe she was just afraid of what would happen if she didn't at least try to reach this person she had heard about. I figured out how to do a lot of things in my life as a single person. Like I am a rock star at making friends and building community. I'm not bad at asking people for what I need, but I also spend a lot of energy and strategy making sure that it's not much. I'm okay at receiving care when I absolutely need it, when if I've got COVID or need surgery just once so far, when it's my fridge filling up with meals that other people have made and dropped off. Kelly is my emergency contact on my health forms, and Fern the second is the woman I shared my life with during pandemic. I mean, I asked her if she wanted to be in a pod before we had that language, as soon as I heard the governor's plans for lockdown, before Fern even heard. And I can almost always find somebody to use my second ticket. I've even sometimes figured out how to meet my need to be witnessed. When that same Kelly's dad died, I wrote a funeral service and I asked Vince if he would read it, just to bear witness to my unbearably painful and good work. There's some people who do know how ridiculous I am when I try to get out the door and they love me anyway, or it turns out they don't even care. And there are many people who know that I'm always late and still put up with me. But there are some things that I cannot do for myself, things I cannot plan for or strategize or heal in myself. In fact, that's one of the first things my physical therapist told me when I saw her for an unrelated chronic middle-aged knee injury. I had done my grandma-style stretches and exercises for over a half year. I did the math. That's 4% of the time that this woman was hemorrhaging. And after six months, I'd gotten somewhat better, but I still couldn't run. So I went to see a new physical therapist, somebody I heard about here at church. And when I went to her and told her the whole story about my initial injury and all the ways I had tried to take care of it and the doctors who I'd seen who'd said nothing was wrong and the ones who seemed not to believe how active I am anyway and about the x-rays I had spent money on to prove that nothing was wrong and how disheartened I was and how I'd done all these stupid, boring, time-consuming little exercises that didn't fix it, what she said to me was, this is something you can't fix yourself. You need someone to do something to you in order to fix it. Jesus said, 
to the woman on the road in the middle of that crowd after she had touched his cloak and felt her body was healed, Jesus said to her that her faith had healed her. There was so much she was able to make happen on her own. All that money and energy and strategy trying to get well and have some semblance of a life in the meantime. She even ultimately healed herself, or at least she got herself out into the pathway of healing. And when she came into the crowd, into the light of day, into finally Jesus' line of vision, when he spun around looking for who touched him, he said, your faith has healed you. But for her too, there was something she couldn't fix herself alone. It wasn't until she, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole story. It wasn't until she spoke out loud to someone else about her private, isolating, gross need that Jesus almost repeated himself, but he changed it. Your faith has saved you, he said. And then he added, go in peace and be healed of your disease. On the parlor floor, I truly felt more pain than I have ever felt except once, that one surgery I had. It was dark and I wasn't even sure yet what had happened, how I'd fallen. Had I broken ribs? I mean, I really thought so. There was shooting pain. How would I get anyone's attention? And, and after I yelled, I was worried that no one would come. And so I fished my phone out of my pocket and I voice texted Vince, oh my God, comma, will you come into the parlor? Who does that? But before I sent it, he came rushing in, fear on his face, and he flipped on the lights. What happened? I gasped it out, still embarrassed, but beyond keeping it to myself for fear of what was happening. And Amber Kuyat, who's with the kids today, Amber Kuyat, who's an incredibly hardcore orthopedic nurse, she was still here, and Vince ran outside to get her in. And she came back in with Reese and, and with her own mom, and she situated them both in seats along the wall where they sat and looked at me, still on the floor, still in shock. Can you sit up, Amber asked. It hurt so much. But as I could have maybe predicted when I texted that comma, as I should have known when I asked Amber, how long will it take to get well as I opened my laptop, I was gonna be fine, eventually. The thing I fear, eyes on me and my needy, gross, solitary little body, and the thing I crave, the thing I need, the thing I fear being needy, and the thing I desire, having my needs seen and met. How easy it is for me, to even me, to offer even Kyle loving eyes on his itchy arm. How easy it is to offer someone else what they need, and how hard it is to call out from my solitude and embarrassment and pain to say what it is that I need. There are things we cannot fix by ourselves. Things we need someone to do for us or to us. And there's good news and bad news. I am and you are seen and known more deeply than we know. The very thing you're afraid of, spoken out loud in front of a God who already knows and loves you, or in front of God's people who are looking at you with loving eyes, it could be the very thing that saves you. <laughs> 